Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll hear more about the gradual recovery of a fish species native to the Colorado River Basin. And we'll explore new ideas to help the state's big game population migrate more safely. Animals, they can't stay in one area to get all their survival requirements. Plus, we learn why ozone levels on the ground are so high along the Front Range. That's just ahead after Colorado Headlines. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Today marks an important day in the saga of one swimming celebrity in the Colorado River Basin. The humpback chub is a fish native to the Colorado River, and after decades on the endangered species list, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is downlisting it to threatened status. For more on the gradual recovery of the species and what that tells us about the river overall, we're joined by Alex Hager, who covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this humpback chub and why it is so important. Well, this is a fish that lives in the Colorado River Basin. There are five wild populations, most notably in the Grand Canyon and then also in some other canyons in Colorado and Utah. It lives in white water. It lives in that kind of turbulent, uh, fast-moving river water, which is why it likes canyons and narrow areas. And it gets its uh, it gets its name from a little fleshy bump behind its head. It's not a very pretty fish, but it's a very well-loved fish. Uh, it, because it had been endangered for a really long time, it gets a lot of attention, a lot of humpback chub conservation work, blood of news headlines when uh, its status changes. And a lot of that is because it can be viewed as an indicator species for the health of the river. And on a softer note, there was once uh, a campaign to rename the minor league baseball team in Grand Junction to the humpback chubs, and that did not succeed. But I think it, it kind of speaks to how the humpback chubs a little bit of a celebrity, at least as far as Colorado River fish go. Well, definitely kind of a local celebrity. And now they're being downlisted. Tell us about that. What does that really mean? Well, they've been on the endangered list for more than 50 years. That's largely because about 50 years ago, we humans were building a lot of dams and messing with, you know, naturally existing habitats. Recovery plans for the fish have been around in one form or another for more than 40 years. So it's been a long time coming. Basically, Fish and Wildlife thinks that those recovery efforts have finally paid off. Biologists have done things like working to separate chubs from their predators while they were spawning. And there's new ways that humans are managing water flow in the river. That's also been good for chub populations. In one part of the Little Colorado River, they said the population has more than quadrupled since the early 90s. And because of that, they said it's time to change their status. And with that change in status, I guess I'm wondering what actually happens. Are there any actual changes in play? In summary, it's not a whole lot. Threatened is just one step down on the scale. Endangered means that a species is on the brink of extinction, and threatened means that that species is on the brink of endangered. And because of that, a good majority of the protections that are given to endangered species will still be in effect. There's still going to be conservation work. There's still be protections. A lot of the celebration we're seeing around this reclassification is kind of in line with that idea that they're an indicator species. So it it represents progress, even if that progress isn't finished. And so when it comes to this downgrading, I mean, is this widely accepted as the right time to do that? It is not. There are people who are pushing back on this decision. I talked with one of them, Jen Pels, who works on river conservation with the group Wild Earth Guardians. She said humpback chubs are not at all out of the woods yet. Climate change is a huge looming threat to really anything that lives in the Colorado River. It's getting hotter. We've got a shrinking water supply in so many parts of the basin. 
even if they're doing better now, it's still a relatively fragile population. And, and it could be in trouble again even with small changes, much less the catastrophic changes that could be on the horizon with climate change. Pels also had this to say. For the Fish and Wildlife Service to be using its resources to reclassify endangered fish as threatened seems to me like a, a bad use of resources when there are, you know, there is a backlog of of species that are trying to get listed that need protection desperately. She said she doesn't want to discount that, that some of these conservation efforts have been really good, but this reclassification just isn't the right move. Downlisting isn't the answer. I think that you keep doing the things and you keep justifying the program because it's clearly working. There's it, the, the species is not as in dire state as it was you know, 30 years ago. But the reality is, is that, you know, one project on a certain tributary could completely wipe out the species. And as with everything in the world of climate change, things are changing fast. And a lot of times they're changing in ways that scientists can't always predict. So species like the humpback chub could be back on the rocks in ways we haven't even seen yet. Right. Well, with the overall condition of the river sort of where we're at now, what does all that mean for fish? Fish can be pretty sensitive to small changes in conditions on the river. That's something we actually saw this summer. Uh, Not specifically with the humpback chub necessarily, but with other species, there were fishing closures in parts of the Colorado River, and that is a direct result of changes in water level. Basically, it goes like this. When we're in a drought, there's less water in the river. When there's less water in the river, it gets hotter more easily, and when the water's hot, fish get stressed. And when they get stressed, they die. We saw die-offs as a result of low, hot water earlier this summer. People had to stop fishing because that would only make them more stressed. There are a lot of ways that climate change messes with the balance of ecosystems and habitats. And this is one where dead fish are already showing the effects and more harmful changes are probably on the way. Mm-hmm. Well, a mixed bag of news there. But KUNC's Alex Hager covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC. And you can find more of his work at our website, KUNC.org. Alex, thanks for talking with us. Anytime. Glad to be here. Back in September, Colorado state officials released a selection of policy recommendations geared toward providing more migration routes for the state's declining big game populations while preserving as much land as possible. The Big Game Migration and Wildlife Connectivity Policy Report offers recommendations for improving animal habitats and building migration routes for species like elk, moose, and deer. Here to talk more about the policy ideas in the report and the importance of species migration overall is the Wildlife Movement Coordinator for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Michelle Coarden. Michelle, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So for those of us who are a little removed from the world of state government, can you tell us a little more about this report, what's in it, and how it came together? Yeah, the plan recognizes the importance of big game and other wildlife in the state. And the need to protect and enhance those important seasonal ranges such as winter range and calving areas, and also the need to conserve the animal's ability to move between seasonal habitats, which are referred to uh, migration corridors. And the policy plan developed by the Department of Natural Resources with um, several partners, including Colorado Parks and Wildlife and Colorado Department of Transportation, identifies impacts to wildlife, including habitat loss, degradation, and fragmentation for many threats, such as our roadway infrastructure, industrial and residential growth, and also outdoor recreational activities. And then the plan further goes and provides a range of options to address these challenges, 
including incentivizing participation by industry and private landowners to voluntarily partner in conservation efforts. Also, some options are developing a statewide habitat connectivity plan to help us identify our priority areas, working with trail development to plan trails with wildlife in mind, and then working with partners to expand conservation actions and funding opportunities. And then the big piece is also having Department of Natural Resources and Colorado Parks and Wildlife and the Colorado Department of Transportation to work together to construct transportation infrastructure to reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. Maybe now is a good time to talk about species migration, which is uh, kind of at the the foundation of what we're talking about here. And it's sort of your expertise, uh, some of these big policy ideas. Let's start with why species migration is so important. Why do you think we should be thinking about this, Michelle? Well, migration is really important to allow animals to travel from one habitat type to another in search of food, better habitat conditions, and also reproductive needs. In Colorado, we actually historically have had some of the largest mule deer herds across the western U.S., and also we have the largest elk herd in the country. And so these animals need to be able to move between those seasonal ranges. And in Colorado, a lot of that is dependent on climate and seasonal changes. So our deer and elk, uh, they'll move between lower elevation winter ranges to higher elevation summer ranges in search of food that's more nutritional. And then in the fall, as the snow begins to approach and increase up in the high country, those same animals will return to their winter range where snow loads are lower and they can access food. Animals also need the ability to make daily movements which are referred to movement corridors versus migration corridors. And you can think about it, you know, animals, they can't stay in one area to get all their survival requirements. They need to be able to move across the landscape to find food, mate, and shelter, as I mentioned earlier. And this is similar to us, how we don't just live in our houses, but we need to be able to travel to the grocery store places of work and be able to see family and friends. So animals are trying to move across the landscape at the same time that we're moving on our highways and our trails, which then can cause issues where where our movements overlap or interfere with animal movements. Right, and I suppose those are issues like automobile collisions, things like that. Yes, uh, several different issues. I mean, automobile collisions or wildlife vehicle collisions you know, that causes a safety concern for both people and wildlife. And so that it gets a lot of attention. And also it's, it's an issue that we can address through some different construction of wildlife crossings, such as overpasses and underpasses. But also, I mean, those issues arise with migration movements where homes are built, industrial areas are developed, even where we recreate um, can cause impacts to our animals' migration and movements. Well, um, let's dive into the issue of collisions a little further. Um, what does the data show here? How, how frequent do these collisions happen? And then I'm also wondering if this, in this plan of policy proposals, there are any ideas that would specifically try to lower the incidence of these crashes. Well, in some areas across the state on our roadways, wildlife vehicle collisions can account for 60% of collisions that are reported to law enforcement. And we've also documented that 
we can see upwards of 2% of our deer herds are impacted by wildlife vehicle collisions. So they're quite frequent as most people know, especially as we move into these winter months and animals are moving onto their winter range and also as um, it's darker in the evening sooner um, and animals are moving at sunset and sunrise more frequently. And also a lot of our roadways are built in uh, lower bottom areas or river corridors and this is where animals are going to go in the winter. We are speaking with the Wildlife Movement Coordinator for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Michelle Kowarden. Uh Michelle, tell me a little bit about some of the proposed ideas that have already come up a little bit, but animal underpasses and overpasses. Um, we already have a small handful of these in the state, right, along Highway 9? Yes, actually. So Highway 9 was completed in 2016, and it consisted of five large wildlife underpasses, which are large concrete culverts that uh, animals cross under while traffic travels over. And we also have two wildlife overpasses that span over the road. And so this creates a tunnel where traffic travels through the tunnel and wildlife go over the highway. And these were the first two wildlife overpasses that were constructed um, in the state. However, looking back at data, CDOT's been constructing different types of wildlife underpasses since the 1950s and 1960s, but we weren't aware of kind of the importance of the placement of the structures, the size of the structures, and creating these systems of multiple structures. So over the last 10 years or so, we've been working towards creating more of a system of structures in Colorado. Um, Highway 9 has been very successful. We did a five-year monitoring project. We documented over 112,000 successful mule deer movements in those five years that are seven structures. And we also saw 16 other species use the structures. And we saw a 90% reduction in wildlife vehicle collisions on that 10 and a half mile stretch of highway. And since then, there's many other projects occurring across the state. On I-25, there's the GAP project, which consists of five underpasses, and they're also trying to currently get funding to do a large overpass. Also up on State Highway 13, we're working towards installing a wildlife radar detection system. So in an area where we don't have the opportunity based on topography and land ownership to do underpasses or overpasses, we're creating a crosswalk with a detection system to warn drivers as wildlife approach the highway. That was Wildlife Movement Coordinator for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Michelle Coarden. Michelle, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Across the U.S., cities have had a lot of success lowering harmful ground-level ozone in recent years. But there are exceptions to that trend in some key western cities. Last summer, for instance, the Front Range and Denver in particular recorded some of the worst air quality levels on the entire planet. KUNC's Aaron O'Toole spoke with Kaiser Health News environment reporter Jim Robbins to better understand where the region is at in terms of air quality. Remind us quickly what ozone is and where it comes from. Ozone uh, is an odorless, colorless gas. It's chemically similar to chlorine, but less toxic than chlorine. Um, Lots of people have probably heard of the ozone layer, which is uh, in the stratosphere, high above us. And in the stratosphere, ozone is very important as a shield against um, 
against harmful U, too much UV rays from the sun. Ground level ozone is the stuff we breathe. And that comes from a different source. It comes from nitrous oxide, which is emitted by automobiles into the atmosphere, uh, ground level. And then the sun bakes it or cooks it into, uh, into ozone. Uh, another source is what's called volatile organic compounds. Uh, some of those come from natural sources like trees and other plants. But some of those VOCs, most of those VOCs, especially in Colorado, come from oil and gas development, from fracking and things like that. They're released into the atmosphere and they also get cooked into, into becoming um, ozone. And so that ozone hangs out near the ground and it's very toxic. And as we learn more about it, it's becoming apparently more toxic than we even understood up till now. What do we know about how ground level ozone impacts people? Why do we need to be concerned about it? Well, it's a poison, essentially, it's toxic. And uh, it, of course, it affects the most sensitive among us. Anyone who has an immune system that's compromised will find it further compromised by ozone. Recent research is showing that it might even reach further into and be more systemic than we realize. Uh, there was work done in Colorado that uh, looked at the impact of ozone on the, the gut microbiome. And these are the, the microbes that live in our, our stomach and our intestines. And these are really important. We've looked this in the last few years, we've learned a lot about the gut microbiome, how it affects everything from mood to weight gain and, and, a, and a whole host of things you might not suspect that that your stomach has anything to do with, but it's turning out to be critically important. And it looks like ozone may reduce the um, microbial diversity in your gut. The other important study here was done at Stanford University. What they found is that among children, six to eight year old children that they studied, is that ozone apparently causes changes at the cellular level. And this could mean, this could cause a switch to be flipped in the cell that changes it and then affects the immune system and other things later in life. And those exposures to ozone may just be a day or two to cause these, these long-term changes. That is concerning, especially given how many days, you know, we've had ozone alert days um, and things like that on the front range. Can you tell me how ozone pollution here compares to other Western cities? Uh, is there some kind of visual that might help sort of quantify that? Well, all of the large urban areas in the West have ozone problems. Any mountain valley where you have large concentrations of people um, are, are high these days in ozone because one, there's all of these Western cities are growing. So that means more traffic and more emissions. Um, and these Western cities are subject to inversions in the summer, especially when you get the air just sitting there and it's stagnant and, it, and there's no breezes blowing. Um, climate change is a factor in this because it's getting hotter. And that means that uh, as it gets hotter, more of the Precursors, the nitrous oxide or NOx that I mentioned, and then the volatile organic compounds, uh, they get cooked into more ozone because it's it's getting hotter, and that the sun is what is the agent that changes these precursors into ozone. Another factor, which I was surprised to learn, is that climate change means less wind, and so you're seeing a lot of these pollutants sit in the in these valleys for days at a time without being blown out. 
We're speaking with Kaiser Health News environment reporter Jim Robbins. You know, for several years, air quality on the Front Range has been improving. The past two years, though, things took a turn for the worse. I want to understand why. What happened in 2020 and 2021 that changed that trend? Well, my understanding is it has to do with the forest fires that were burning in California that got worse the last couple of years. But again, you also have numbers of people moving to to the front range, increasing. Um, You have uh, climate change getting worse. Um, So I don't know how to tease out the different factors that caused the increase, but those things seem to be coming together to, to cause the problem. Maybe there's more oil and gas development. Public transportation is is a very difficult thing in, in on the front range, and so more and more people are driving as the city grows, and, and there are not enough people taking public transportation. Well, we when we talk about ozone pollution, we're talking about global impacts. Um, I understand that ozone pollution affects biodiversity, something that you've written about before. Can you explain that connection? Yes, uh, there's been some recent studies. Uh, wrote a piece for. Yale University's E360, if people want to check that out. And, and ozone is an, inv- is an invisible gas. You could walk outside and be surrounded by it. You wouldn't know it was there. You wouldn't see it. You wouldn't smell it. wouldn't taste it until, unless it got to really high levels. Um, but it's there. And so it hasn't been well studied. People have just simply ignored a lot of it. It has been studied in terms of its impact on plants, on trees, Sequoia National Park has high levels of ozone that come up from the Central Valley, and and they're worried about the sequoia trees, and it may be contributing to to problems for those trees. It may weaken them, may weaken their immune system, make them more susceptible to insects, fire, things like that, drought. One of the things that's been well studied is, is the impact of ozone on the trees and how it reduces the floral scent that pollinators can detect up to a half a mile away. And so they're not coming to pollinate the plants, but ozone also impacts the the insects directly and affects their their ability to detect scent. So you're getting a double whammy here where the insect can't smell because it's, it's sense of its olfactory sense is being damaged. And then the trees are putting out less scent because they're being changed. And so you could have serious impacts from from a diminishment or even a lack of of pollination in some of these forest ecosystems. Rocky Mountain National Park, among other natural areas, might be particularly susceptible to the impacts of ozone. What type of species are being affected here in Colorado? Ponderosa pine is a big one. Pines are, are especially hit hard by it. Uh, the other thing, the other question is people should ask, and I'm looking into this now, is at what level should you not go hiking in a place like Rocky Mountain National Park and breathe in uh, uh, ozone? And um, that's something to check in with park management about. One of the interesting things now about about the health impacts is that until 2015, well, the federal ozone standard was 75 parts per billion. And and Colorado was, was gaining on that and able to to get it down uh, and was coming close to meeting the and a lot of times meeting this limit and then it was changed in 2015 to 70 parts per billion so that's part of the reason that colorado's had difficulty in meeting this new standard in the last six years now there is a renewed interest by the epa to look at whether 70 is too high still and to reduce it to 60 parts per billion. 
And the World Health Organization and other researchers, including local researchers in Colorado, believe that it should be 60 parts per billion and that we are, we are putting our health at risk by, by limiting it to 70 parts per billion. So that's a serious difference between 70 and 60. If that happens, it's going to be even more difficult, a lot more difficult for Colorado and the Front Range to meet these standards. What can be done about ground level ozone on the Front Range? Is it something that can be controlled? Yes, but it's difficult. And um, it, it requires a lot of commitment over many years. And the big one is, is public transport, transportation networks. And the other thing is control of oil and gas emissions. Now, those are the two big ones. Well, we know global leaders have been meeting as they do, you know, it, for the UN Climate Summit. Does it feel like perhaps this year some policy measures might be created that would lead to improved ozone levels on the Front Range? I'm worried that that we're running out of time to do something. And I have to say, I've been optimistic up until recently. And and to see these kind of uh, anomalous events, Uh, if you you had a week of 120 degrees in British Columbia or Montana or anywhere, you'd see a lot of trees dying. You'd see a lot of of wildlife dying. And a lot of ocean life did die during these, these anomalous events in British Columbia. So I hope there's time, um, but I, I'm, I have to say I'm running out of optimism. Jim Robbins writes about the environment for Kaiser Health News. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll talk with three Native artists who are working on separate murals in Denver's Rhino Arts District for Native American Heritage Month. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.